Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of MSTA Presents. Uh, this is our uh, weekly podcast. We've started to get back into the swing of things now that school is back in session and we're uh, pretty consistent with our podcasts, especially as we begin to lead up to our convention that's going to take place in November. Today, I have with me Dr. Dina Ogden. Dina is our MSTA. Uh, she's our professional learning manager for MSTA, as well as uh, we're honored to have Dr. Brooks Gibbs with us as well. Uh, Dr. Gibbs is a resilience educator with a PhD in social psychology, and he is going to be our convention speaker, as well as our deep dive presenter for the 2023 convention. So, Dr. Gibbs, thank you for joining us. Yeah, just call me Brooks. Thank you so much. Good to be with you guys, and I cannot wait for the big event. I'm going to hit a grand slam home run for you guys. I'm so excited to meet everyone. Brooks, we're excited to have you. Um, I I've been looking at your website. I we we have information about you up on our website, and of course, I'll put all those links in the show notes. And one of the first things that I wanted to know about, especially since I was reading more about you uh, in your background on your website, is can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to working with and speaking to students? When I graduated high school, I happened to be at the right place at the right time to create a trajectory for the rest of my life. I was in Littleton, Colorado, and there was a school called Columbine that had, uh, at that time, the worst school shooting. And it really captured the heart of the world. And that was also the birthplace of what is now, looking back, called the anti-bullying movement. And uh, interestingly enough, it was also the launch of another movement that would parallel um, and be complementary. And that was called the uh, social and emotional learning movement. Um, so in 1999, the first anti-bullying law in Georgia was uh, passed in October. And the first time castle.org, the collaborative for academic social emotional learning website was launched as a collaborative was also that year in 1999. So two paths uh, really, really started that year. And, and I, I was caught up in that, you know, saying, how do we help kids not hurt themselves or hurt others in retaliation? And that's what that tragedy represented. The shooters not only killed others, but they killed themselves. And so the conclusion back in the day through town halls and many meetings in Littleton, Colorado, was we have to help address the victim mindset of children. And how do we do that? And there were two di kind of diverse or, or divergent uh, and really op uh, opposing viewpoints. One was a legal approach. Let's criminalize mean words and actions of others so that we protect kids who are helpless from solving their social problems. That was the legal movement of the anti-bullying movement. And then the other uh, argument uh, and mindset and worldview was, no, let's empower children to protect their heart, be emotionally resilient, uh, manage their anger and resolve their social problems. Let's give them skills. That's sort of the, not the legal approach, but the educational approach, which the SEL movement went. And so I've spent my entire career for the last 23, 24 years now uh, watching the tension between the two. And I'm pleased to announce that the anti-bullying movement is officially over. It did not survive COVID. All movements are like trends, they have ends. But what is still standing? Well, this concept of educating children, whether you call it SEL or not, here in the state of Florida, you're not even allowed to use social and emotional learning. You're just not. You won't get any funding for it because it's become politicized. But be that as it may, 
the two trajectory, you know, kind of pathways were either legal approach to help kids with their social and emotional problems or an educational approach. And finally, I'm proud to say education won. And now we're giving kids skills to manage their mental health. I, I've really enjoyed watching your your videos because, you know, I know you're going to be speaking to our members. You're going to be speaking to teachers. But the videos I've watched are you speaking to students and they are engaged. I mean, you're connecting with them. And I I, I am impressed by the ability of anyone of of our age. You know, my my age is probably much more older than yours, but anyone that is an adult to be able to connect with students, especially when you're in and out, basically probably in, in a one day event, maybe a 90 minute, 60 minute event, uh, those students are engaged and and I'm impressed with that. Oh, thank you. You know, if you could teach kids, you could teach anybody. And so that's what's really awesome. And I, it, some of my days are really weird. Like uh, yesterday, I was in, uh, I was back in Colorado, even though I live in Florida, I was touring Parker, Colorado, outside of Denver, uh, a bunch of schools in a school district. And I would uh, teach uh, kindergarten through fifth grade in an elementary presentation, of course, six through eight in the middle. And then I went to a high school, you know, ninth through 12th. And then I had a parent event at 530, you know, to, <laughs> to 730 or whatever, 630. And, and then I had uh, a conversation with a bunch of mental health professionals afterwards for dinner. And uh, I, all in a single day, and I'm teaching the exact same thing, how to learn to, uh, to avoid being offended, how to be emotionally resilient, how to raise our frustration tolerance, how to lower our expectations of how we must perform, they must cooperate, and life must turn out. And it's the exact same thing, resilience. And yet, you know, with kids, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I've learned to be somewhat of a comedian, very expressive. I'm extremely interactive. That's probably what I'm known for most is you're never going to hear me or see me speak and not have people on the stage or not have lots of interaction and reaction. It's really one of the loudest presentations you'll ever hear ever. Uh, I feel bad for the kids on the spectrum that have to have headphones. I really do actually feel bad because my presentations are so incredibly loud, but they're unforgettable. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's what you want, I think. Yeah, I saw a fireman carry as well as a wrestling match take place in the videos I saw. So get get you ready. Know, just this morning, <laughs> just this morning, as God is my witness, before this interview, I had to go visit my chiropractor because <laughs> I was thrown around by a bunch of people this week in Colorado. And I got it. I can't do this forever, but I'm in my 40s and I think I got another decade of wrestling with kids. Yeah, good. Well, get ready, MSTA members. Uh, you are you are in for uh, something pretty exciting. Dean, I don't want to co-op the entire uh, in interview. I know you have some questions as well. Well, uh, no, uh, Brooks, you know, you, you mentioned you've been traveling around and you kind of mentioned it a little bit about, um, you know, the lack of motivation. And I think consistently what we keep hearing from our members, our teachers that are out there, is a lack of motivation, as well as, you know, uh, students' inability to take that criticism or persevere when they haven't made that 100%. As one teacher said, a parent during a parent-teacher interview, a uh, parent-teacher conference, the parent said, 100% is not good enough. I expect 110%. So how do you, what do you say to teachers when they, when they, they feel downtrodden because of the fact that the students, that they don't know how to get around that lack of motivation. 
They don't know how to get around that fact that the kids don't realize a part of failing is part of learning because of our society and that belief that we have to be better than 100%. Mm. Yeah, I think we uh, we I think we all are like like the students that we serve. We struggle with motivation. Um, and if you really look at your life, uh, there's a lot of uh, compromise that you have. You probably drive an average car. You've settled in that area. You probably live in an average house, something within your means. And uh, you probably married a extraordinary human being. And that's where you gave 110%. <laughs> See how I protected myself there. Good answer. Thank you. <laughs> 23 years married. I know better. Um, so I can understand a child not understanding the utility of a subject, that it has no existential purpose in their life. Um, so we have to awaken the learner, the love for learning, for doing something hard, accomplishing it, and having the satisfaction of achievement. But achievement is, I think, um, rewarding in and of itself. So what I have tried to teach teachers, and I certainly parent this way, is reward resilience. Let that be the ethos of the classroom and of the school. When you see someone do something difficult with a good attitude, when you see someone picked on and they're not devastated, but they continue to their day in stride, when you see kids excluded from a group and yet they find one friend that does like them for who they are and how they are not living for the approval of the others. When you see a kid take a criticism and have a th spirit of thank you for the criticism instead of taking offense to that, telling mom and making mom come confront the teacher why she's such a bully. So you want to reward resilience, which is getting through adversity and actually leveraging that adversity for your own growth. And this is uh, so powerful and so effective. Uh, I think it's more important to reward resilience, meaning experiencing a bummer with a smile or with a good attitude. It's more important rewarding that than it is A's or you know, a B plus or, or honor roll or, you know, no absence or tardies. I mean, those are good, but that, that kind of, that doesn't get to the heart of what matters in life. And that's enduring hardship, doing difficult things with a good attitude. So I think as, as, a, as a school culture in general, we should shift how we reward and really make endurance or resilience the highest level of reward that we celebrate as a school. I love that. I love that. You, you know, you, you, when you're talking about resilience, um, you, you have a powerful statement and it's something that from the very first time I saw one of your videos and, and you, you said it has resonated with me. We've always heard. And I, as a young child, you know, I can remember being told sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. But what you say is words only have the power that you give them. And I think that that is that so telling. But hard, yeah. it sounds great, but hard to practice. The, the concept of words have the power, only have the power that you give them is actually associated with the American colloquialism. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. In other words, those are inseparable. The colloquialism is built on the fact that words only have the power that you give them. First published in 1863 during the Civil War era by the African-American church called AIM, African Methodist Episcopal Church. 
was published in a document called The Christian Reporter, the first time ever introduced to the world. The Sticks and Stones slogan was given by Blacks for their children who would grow up free from slavery, but not free from racism. So they knew that they would have to differentiate physical pain and emotional pain. Sticks and stones, yeah, that's physical pain. That might break your bones. But emotional pain, words or exclusions or um, you know, uh, gossip and rumors or trolling or stuff like that, that only has the power to hurt your feelings. And you are the one that has to cooperate with the insult in order for it to hurt. But if you don't cooperate with the insult, you don't let it pass your mind to your heart, then you're going to be free from the needless suffering that comes from being wounded by words. And I love the way my grandmother Jody put it. She says, if you want to break my heart, you got to go through my brain first. In other words, there's a disconnect between what you say and how I feel. It has to go through my interpretation uh, faculties, my my belief system. And, and so when we can help children to take that insult captive and address it in the mind so it doesn't take the trip down to the emotional state we call the heart. That's very important. And when I teach this to students, it's like the first time they've ever heard that. They actually believe words hurt, words wound, words kill, because that's what they've been indoctrinated with the anti-bullying movement. They, the anti-bullying movement only has one dimension teaching on words, which is only half truth, that words hurt. Well, that is true, halfly, but it only hurts if I let it hurt me. And if you tell a kid a half truth, you're lying to them. And so I'm not in denial that words hurt. I know they do. I've been hurt by words myself, but it's because I cooperated with the insult and I ultimately disturbed myself by taking the words to heart. So responsibility for your emotional state is on you, not on the person who's being mean to you. I, I just think that that's very, very powerful and very, very um, relevant in today's world. It, it's, it, it just seems like we have an epidemic of rudeness and, um, you know, out, out in society and our schools are just a microcosm of the society. And so, you know, when dealing with parents, uh, when dealing with our students, when dealing with our colleagues, oftentimes um, there is that element and it's just all those words and whether or not you allow those to impact you and how you let them impact you. And so I think that that's a really powerful uh, process, thought, mind, mm -hmm. mindset. Brooks, you've been talking about, there are two key terms that I see on your website. And when I've listened to your presentations, two things that of course come to mind, one is emotional resilience, which I think we've, we've kind of been talking about here. I mean, uh, the, the phrase itself, but then the golden rule. And uh, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about what you mean. I, I know what the golden rule is, but from your perspective, I'd like to know more about what you're, what you're talking about. You bet. Uh, I do love those two ideas, emotional resilience, which is not getting upset, being patient with people, especially those who are difficult. But the second idea is treating others like a friend, the way you want to be treated. Those two have a very powerful combination. You can't have one without the other. In other words, I can't genuinely treat you the way I want to be treated, like a, like a friend, if I'm offended by you. It's like my, my limbic system hijacks my cerebral cortex 
And if, even if I'm a good actor, you'll still see it on my face that I'm irritated with you. So resilience comes before kindness. Patience comes before kindness. And really that combination historically, religiously is love. Love is patient, love is kind. And so that's fascinating when I found that in, a, in an old ancient scriptural poem, love is patient, love is kind. And I'm thinking, yes, you know, that is so true. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, the resilience blocks the blow or blocks the attack. So I'm not offended by it. And then another, the other side of the sword, so to speak, say, uh, kills them with kindness, so to speak, you know, as grandma would put it. So the golden rule is an uh, uh, instruction that I learned a lot from um, Izzy Kalman. He's a, my mentor. He's a school psychologist. He's loved by so many. Been in working in education for 45 years. He's an absolute legend. And uh, he's my personal mentor and friend. And, and I love him so much. And he taught me so much about the golden rule. And he basically helped me understand we don't need a social skill for reciprocity. Meaning we don't need a social skill uh, for treating nice people in a nice way, right? Or treating mean people in a mean way. When you're nice to me, I want to be nice to you. I don't need a skill for that. When you're mean to me, I want to be mean back to you. I don't need a social skill for that. So I'm friendly to friendly people and I treat my enemies like enemies. But the problem is that only creates more problems. <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King said, hatred only creates more hatred. Violence creates more violence. Anger creates more anger. So we're wired for reciprocity. And we actually need a social skill to teach us how to work against our biological programming to reciprocate the attitude that others project against us. So instead of treating others the way they treat you, that's reciprocity, the golden rule was given us to flip it. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Man, I'm telling you what, that word want is the hinge pin in, in, in the social psychological brilliance of the golden rule. It's the want. How do you want to be treated? I ask kids all the time, how do you want to be treated? Like a friend or like an enemy? And if every kid is honest and not ornery, they will say friend. I want to be treated like a friend. Well, then put that in the golden rule. Treat others like friends, especially your enemies. And that's what the golden rule means. It essentially means to love your enemies, to be good and kind to your enemy. Why? Because they have a very hard time being mean back to you when you're being nice to them. And that's really what made me famous online as a mental health influencer, is I demonstrate, learned again from Izzy Kalman, bringing people on stage to be mean to me. And when I'm mean back to them, it, it just escalates hostilities. But if I want peace, if I want to stop their negative behavior, if I want to protect my heart from any pain, if I want to be the change I want to see in the world, so to speak. I need to flip it. I need to engage with the golden rule. And no matter how they're treating me, I'm going to treat them the way I want to be treated, which is like a friend. And then everyone sees it. It's so demonstrative. Everyone sees that no one can stay mean to me. I've played this over 2,000 times all around the country, and I've never lost this interaction game one time. Not once have I lost. That's how powerful it is, even in the real world. Yeah, I, I tell my students and uh, and my kids, you know, you you can start conversations at a zero, one or two. Uh, you you don't have to start at an 11. And I have never had to go to 11 in my lifetime because I start the conversation and the interaction uh, at a place where I want my the person I'm talking to to be at as well. And uh, I've, I've never had to escalate because of that. And uh, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing there. 
I think so. You know, like if if uh, my kids are very well behaved, they get along. I'm very thankful for that. But occasionally, mm-hmm. uh, my 15 or 16 year old would be known for uh, losing their mind. And one thing that I love to do is talk even quieter and calmer as they escalate and they're just to show the contrast, mm-hmm. you know, so they cannot blame me for yelling at them. And that's something we have to tell teachers. Never yell at children. All that communicates is that nobody's in control. You're certainly not. And they aren't. And you think that's going to bring peace and harmony and kumbaya to the classroom environment is by you taking offense and yelling at the kid? No. Be calm. Go quiet. And, and stick to the subject at hand. Stick to the thing. Not Don't fall for their red herring or their distraction to get you off. Even if they're dropping F-bombs, this is not the time to focus on the F-bomb. To be clear, my kids have never cussed. I've never once heard them cuss, honestly, never once. And they certainly wouldn't cuss at me. But uh, but when the point is, I'm not going to even let accusations or any type of counterattack of theirs to distract me, the teacher, the parent, from the task at hand, which is to address the issue that is at the root of their issue. And that takes incredible focus and self-discipline. And I think you're giving a good example. Stay at a one, stay at a two, stay at a three. Don't escalate it to 11 like they are. Mm-hmm. Dina, I, I know that. Uh, so all of this kind of leads up to uh, one of our longest, biggest presentations that uh, we we invite somebody, ask somebody to do for us every year. And uh, that's our deep dive that happens right after convention is over. And before we even talk about um, uh, Brooks, what Brooks will be talking to our, our members about. Can can you go into a little bit of detail about what the deep dive actually is? Because I'm not sure that everybody knows what takes place, how it takes place, and, and that it's completely separate in some ways from, from our convention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about seven years ago, we added this. Um, used to, prior to that, uh, we would have the one-hour keynote, and then, um, you know, that concluded our convention event. And um, so I'd heard from teachers, oh, I wish I had just a little bit more longer to, to talk to them or to hear from them. And so we put into place the deep dive to give them an opportunity to go a little deeper with you know our keynote presenter. And our very first deep dive was with John Antonetti. And so during this event, it's an opportunity to just get the teachers that are the participants. Uh, it's a smaller audience. So it's, it's more intimate, it, you know, they can do a lot more one-on-one with that individual and learn a little bit more about how will this, how can I apply this information? How can I use what they've told me during the keynote? And sometimes our topics are different, but they complement each other because the keynote is a 60 minute real brief thing to kind of uh, motivate, mm-hmm. uh, give them application stuff, but the deep dive that's the education of it. And so how can we go and put this back into our classroom? How can we use this to put into our classroom? And so um, uh, Dr. Gibbs is a, is his keynote is one rule to rule them all, which like you said, that segued right into that because it's talking about the golden rule. And then the deep dive is going to take that a little bit more. And so, um, if you would, Dr. Gibbs, kind of tell us what our what our participants can expect. Um, every keynote presenter is different. So what sets you apart and what can they expect 
at your deep dive? Well, I have spent my entire career helping fig, helping kids get along. And one thing that I noticed is that when we teach them to be nice to each other, it's not very effective. Uh, it's sort of moralizing with them. I call it a, a front door approach. Uh, the, the golden rule is great and we should promote the golden rule, but um, there's something else that prevents us from living by the golden rule. And that's the backdoor approach, dealing with our offenses. And offenses are simply um, violations of rigid demands. That's how an offense actually is created within yourself. You're not getting what you want. Or worse, you're not getting what you demand you must have. That's a very, very common problem for every human being, especially students. And so because I've been tasked my entire career to help improve the social climate of schools and make the classroom a more peaceful uh, environment. You know, I've had to address the root of the issue, which is students' tendencies to be offended, which is the exact same makeup of a teacher's tendency to become offended. We have six rigid demands, and this comes from Dr. Albert Ellis. And so in the deep dive, which is sort of like a workshop, but it's a nice long workshop, I'm so glad you give us that time to interact, to take questions, but then also to talk about the psychological underpinnings of the primary principle. And then I've got now time to play more games, interactive games, which I'm known for. And I think, I think the play state is the greatest state to learn. And so teachers get to be able to laugh and learn at the same time. I mean, I'm, I'm a master at that. I've done this my whole adult life. But I, I've created games for Albert Ellis's six irrational demands that keep us from, um, uh, I guess, being flexible in our mind and not taking offense, keep us from being resilient. And so those are very simply, I'll rattle them off. There's two towards self, two towards others, two towards life. We're going to talk about the demands we have on ourselves. I must perform perfectly well, perfectionism, <laughs> and I must receive approval from important people, approval addiction. <laughs> those, those are the two enemies of our resilience as it relates to our own view of ourselves. How do I feel about myself? So you see kids self-loathing all the time. Uh, the best word for it is inadequacy. They feel inadequate. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. And so a teacher is perfectly positioned to address a student's propensity towards inadequacy by with scalpel accuracy targeting, is it perfectionism or is it approval? that this child is struggling with? And how could I help pry open their grip of demand to more of a lightly held preference? I would like to do well, but I might make a mistake. I would like to be approved, but I can't please everybody. And so a, a teacher, whatever her subject is, whatever the task she gives the student, can be aware that this child has a perfectionism and approval addiction streak. Really quick, when a child has a problem with someone else, whether it's the teacher herself or a peer. Well, you've got two demands at work, and that is you must be fair and you must not block my goal. So it's really a fairness construct that students create in their own mind with a Jehovian godlike complex, which is very, very dangerous. And uh, a frustration intolerance, which is don't block my goal. I was trying to do something and now you're in the way. <laughs> and so we have to 
be aware that that is at the root of this child's offenses. It's why they have a tendency to get angry with me or with someone else is they believe I'm not being fair or they believe I'm blocking their goals. So I need to not really accommodate their demands, but help them give up the grip of their demands and communicate them in a way where they realize I'm on their side. I may be in their face because I'm their teacher. I'm calling them to greater heights, but I'm on their side. I'm for them, not against them. I'm not blocking their goal. I will help them find a creative way to move around the thing that they say is not fair. And the final two things that we'll play games and talk deep about is when a child feels disenfranchised with life. There's two demands that they have on life. Life must be comfortable and turn out how I envisioned. And so a teacher is perfectly positioned to help a child realize that homework is not comfortable. <laughs> Chores at home are not comfortable. Sometimes we got to do difficult things and that's okay. And guess what? We don't always get the grade we want and we're not always gifted at sports like we wish we were. Life doesn't turn out the way we perfectly envisioned it in our imagination. It's not that way in reality. So we are perfectly positioned to help the child give up the grip of their demands of comfort seeking and idealism. And I have learned, man, thank, thank, I'm so thankful for Dr. Albert Ellis who discovered after 70 years of psychotherapy, these six root issues to the neurotic behavior that we see in the classroom, they're rooted in irrational demands about self, others, and life. And man, once a teacher learns this, they become the resident expert for behavioral problems because they get right to the root. They don't focus on how the child feels. They don't focus on what the child, what happened to the child. They focus on the rigid belief system, and there's only six, that the child has about his problem, which produces the feelings that are unwanted that he has. So it's pretty awesome. You're going to be red-pilled, so to speak. <laughs> you're going to see, you're never going to be able to see a conflict again uh, the same way. You will be awakened. This sounds like the kind of deep dive I like because it's the two the two things that mean a lot to me when it comes to pre pre presentations is it's interactive and it's a presentation that doesn't just help a teacher be a better teacher, but helps a teacher help students be not just better students, but in this case, better people. And uh, I, I think that teachers in general, our members will appreciate the opportunity to to join you, Brooks, for the, the deep dive. I, I got to say this, you know, I was in, like I said, Colorado last week, and uh, I was leaving uh, my session, the grown-up session at the end of the day, and and I heard behind me some people talking, and this guy, he said, he says, man, I just wish I would have stuck with psychology. I wish I would have become a psychologist. I just, that was like brain candy. Like I could just sit and listen and <laughs> and learn. And And the number one response I get from any adult learner that's sitting under my teachings um, is this doesn't just help kids. This helps me. Uh, I'd want someone, someone once say, I think you just saved my marriage with this stuff. That's how applicable it is. Mm -hmm. And it's very convicting that, uh, you know, we hear why a student is freaking out. And we realize, wow, I'm just like that student. And, and frankly, I think that's important because mm -hmm. uh, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. We should not be throwing stones at students, pointing fingers at students when we realize, hey, the log, is in our eye. And, you know, we are the ones that struggle with these same things. It takes one to know one, but that's the basis of empathy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I understand what you're struggling with because I struggle with it too. Let's, let's overcome this together. That's the best teacher I want to learn from.
Brooks, we've taken up a lot of your time, but it's been really, really interesting. And uh, it's the the kind of uh, deep dive that uh, I I would like to go to. I'm I I teach, but not the way that our, our public school teachers teach. Um, and I, I'm excited about the opportunity for them. Dina, as we wrap things up, is there are any anything else you want to talk about? Any last questions you want to ask? Uh, no, I'm looking forward to this. I cannot wait for the deep dive. I know the keynote's going to be awesome, but that deep dive is really what I um, can't wait. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a limited number of seats. So oh, okay. we need to let people know that, um, you know, while you can try to register for it at the event, Best bet is to register early mm-hmm. because we will cut that off because we do want to make certain it's small enough that there is a one-to-one opportunity and uh, the connection. And like you said, this isn't just for relationships with students. This is interpersonal relationships in general and mm-hmm. self-growth, I think. And so oh. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'll make sure to put the uh, the link for uh, the deep dive up in the show notes. Uh, there will be many times where we share that information out over the coming weeks. Um, I will also put uh, Dr. Og, uh, Dr. Gibbs' uh, website link up as well, so you can get a chance to see uh, see the the other things that he's been doing. Um, it, it's very interesting, very entertaining. Uh, Brooks, I'm going to give you the last word as we wrap things up here. Anything else you want to kind of uh, conclude with? Yeah, I speak, I'm in a new city every week. I'm in a new state every week. I'm doing events constantly. And uh, I can honestly say, as God is my witness, I'm probably more excited about your event than any other event of my year. And here's why. While I love speaking to students and parents like I do, mental health educators, I certainly love that, uh, professional um, you know, counselors and stuff. But it's the teacher and it's the person who has a heart of a teacher. That's the person I want to be around. Uh, and my favorite, I tell my kids this all the time. My favorite English word is the word teachable. And if you linguistically look at it from the surface, it, it looks like it means able to teach, teachable, able to teach. But in our vernacular, the way we use it, we, we actually mean able to learn. Someone who's teachable is a good student. And that's why I love your conference is because you're gathering teachable students who are teachers, who are able to teach. And that's why they're qualified. If they're not learning how to teach, they are not qualified to teach because you must be a learner before you teach it. And when you teach it, you learn it even more. So I'm geeked as can be, and I cannot (laughs) wait for the event to come. Brooks, we're looking forward to seeing you in Columbia, Missouri in November. Uh, it might be a little cool. You never know in Missouri. It could be really cold. It could be really warm. But you're you will be more than it will be definitely be different than Florida weather. But yeah, we're, we exci- <laughs> we're excited to have you here, though, and we are looking forward to uh, convention and to seeing you in November. So, Brooks, Dina, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, look for another episode of MSTA Presents next week. Thanks. Thanks.